Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part two of our artist spotlight on Weird Al Yankovic, where Alan and I will be curating side B of a mixtape featuring the parodies of the greatest musical humorist in pop music history. Welcome back. Hello. Yeah, I am. Um, I don't know. Last week's episode was a lot of fun. So I'm I'm really looking forward to this week. I'm 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 just curious if you're going to catch up with me and I'll have an opportunity to even get to my alternates if necessary. Well, like I told you, I pretty much stayed with one album, one song per album, with the exception of I have a few from from in 3D. And I think the last album I have one, but it's on my alternates list. Okay. Maybe the last two albums are an alternate, so yeah. we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Interesting. All right. Um. Yeah. So I I, I don't know that we need any kind of uh, discussion. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you're listening with side B, you should probably stop right now and go back and yeah. start with side A and then join us. You bring up a good point because I've seen a lot of, you know, as I watch the downloads of, of previous episodes, um, there are a lot of people that just tune into side B right. and they miss it. Most of the time that doesn't matter. But on this particular episode going chronologically, they're going to be missing possibly a lot of their favorite yeah, weird out yeah. tunes. So, um, yeah, definitely start with side A, folks. Always side A. Um, but it is your turn to begin this week. All right. Well, I ended last week um, with my pick from UHF, and that was Spam. And I mentioned that that was kind of the commercial low point for Weird Al. You mentioned Polka Party was not a commercial success, and that's true. That was kind of his first um, low point. But really, after UHF, because the movie was tied into it, because the movie was a flop. It really, at that point, um, I'd say the odds would be that Weird Al was an 80s thing, right? It was an 80s thing for Gen Xers, and that he would kind of go off into history as a novelty act that represented that decade. And we would look back at Eat It, and we would look back at um, Fat and, and, and the other hits um, that came out at the time and just, you know, have a fond place. Maybe he'd have a reunion tour someday, those like those nostalgic tours that we see with artists, you know, 20 years later. But that was not the case, thank goodness. No. Um, what a great comeback story. Um, also, comeback for rock. We've talked in this um, episode, or on past episodes, a lot about how we felt rock was dying. Um, and of course, not to rehash all of that, but you know, today, rock music is kind of a subgenre when it comes to commercial success. And that's kind of where we were in the late 80s. And... Then came along grunge, right? And not only did, did grunge make alternative music popular, um, got rid of the hair bands, it made hard, harder music and in, in, in kind of, it's, it's almost like you took metal and you took alternative and kind of blended them together and, and even a little classic rock because Neil Young, of course, is the godfather of, of grunge. And so you had this revival of rock music that then lasted and we saw influence pop music going on going forward for at least you know, 10 years or so. And it also um, was a revival for Weird Al Yankovic. Um, he's a very smart guy, as we've established, and he always looks for that one song that's kind of um, part of the zeitgeist of that year or that time, whether it be Eat It or Fat or the Flintstones, as you mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> and he did so wisely with Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit. And uh, I love the, I love the name. It smells like Nirvana, for, yeah. for lack of a better. But but it works. It works. And we had mentioned last week. I teased a little bit that he wanted to get Kurt Cobain's um, approval, but he had a really difficult time getting a hold of Kurt Cobain. Uh, I think they were touring at the time, and and he wanted to get this 
album out. And he had worked with, on UHF, he had worked with Victoria Jackson, and she was a current cast member at the time on Silent Live. And so he figured, why not? Let me give it a shot. He saw that Nirvana was featured uh, as a musical guest on that, that particular week. So he called up Victoria Jackson. He said, do me a favor. Will you please put Kurt on the phone? And so this is like, I don't know, during the rehearsals or maybe even during the live show. But backstage, Victoria Jackson hands the phone to Kurt Cobain. Kurt's like, this is Weird Al Yankovic. I want to do Smells Like Teen Spirit as a parody. And some people might say, oh, that was something that Kurt would take offense to. He loved the idea. Once he realized it wasn't about food. Yeah. <laughs> um, he loved the idea. In fact, he said, well, what's it going to be about? And, and, and Weird Al said, basically how nobody can understand what it is you're singing. He's like, yeah, that's good. Yeah, go with it. <laughs> In fact, Kurt later said that, that Weird Al doing a parody basically said we've made it as a band. Yeah. That that they they again most artists are very flattered to be parodied by Weird Al and this is a great example. Yes. Nirvana was a serious band obviously Kurt had a lot of issues he was dealing with but he still had that sense of humor to know that having Weird Al cover your work is a great compliment. Uh not only was the song parodied but the album cover <laughs> Uh, was a parody. Um, yeah. Sometimes Weird Al will use, the, like we talked about, uh, even worse was a parody of, of Bad, of the, of the of title Bad. In this case, uh, it, obviously we can't show you, um, so look um, online if you have an opportunity. But Off the Deep End features a naked and submerged Weird Al reaching for a donut at the end of a fishing line, much like the baby is reaching for the dollar bill on the um, Nevermind cover from Nirvana. Um, like the Beat It video, Weird Al creates a shot-for-shot shot parody of the Nirvana video using, again, the exact same set and a lot of the same actors. Yeah. He throws in Dick Van Patten as kind of a fun little quirky. Uh, he does that a lot. Certain celebrities will appear. Um, Doug Llewellyn from the People's Court appears in later videos. He just, for whatever reason, finds these culture icons and throws them in. Um, but you had Weird Al and his band dressed, you know, in grunge attire and... It's just it's it's hilarious because, in fact, I think at one point when recording the song, Weird Al actually has like cookies crammed in his mouth when he's singing, <laughs> and not to mention the fact that you have all sorts of musical, um, I guess, comical moments. The janitor I, with the tuba, I love it. Yes, and that's <laughs> the thing that like there's a tuba solo, you know, there's kazoos <laughs> in this song. And so and it's not only a, a lyrical parody, but it's a musical parody as well. There's even a melodic cow. It, yeah, there is. Yeah. Mm. yeah there yeah. is a cow. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about the cow. This brought him back. Boy, this song, this, think about it. Prior to this, it was an 80s thing, right? It was a generation 
X thing. Now, even though Generation X is also associated with grunge, maybe more so even with grunge in the 90s, that's for the adults, right? Grunge music really kind of appealed, maybe I'm wrong on this, to college kids and older. Grunge found its way into the music of the youth. And yes, Tell Smells Like Teen Spirit was huge with, with, with the younger crowd. It was something that we shared with millennials. But really, that was a kind of moment where the millennials and, and, and Gen Xers kind of overlapped a little bit for those few years. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, Kurt Cobain, as we, as we said when we did... Um, the uh, 1991 episodes uh, this season, you know, Kurt Cobain was labeled as the voice for Generation X, right. which he never wanted that label. Right. Um, but Generation X, I mean, you're talking 91, they were all very nearly in adulthood at that time. I mean, those born right on the bubble, 89, or 89, 79, 80, they would have been, they would have been junior high maybe high school but but largely generation x was in college or they had already you know entered right. the workforce right um so yeah grunge was grunge was music for gen x as adults i here's the thing i don't know how many younger fans there were because that wasn't our experience we were in college well here's what i'm so, thinking okay so we're in college and we're buying the albums we're listening to soundgarden we're listening to right. pearl jam we're listening to all sorts of different you know components and, and offshoots of, of grunge the kids at the time the kids in junior high were kind of like the kid like we were when we were kids in junior high we're just going to take whatever comes our way right. for us it was q92 um, for kids, for you know, millennial, junior higher kids at that time, it's going to be... 98.1, probably KDD. Well, not even radio. It's going to be like oh, to oh. Total Request Live. I don't True. know if that was... That's close to the point where TRL started to appear on MTV, but it's yeah. MTV. MTV, in, in some cases, yes, still radio. They're still listening to radio, but I feel like MTV was more of the vehicle it, it was, yeah. uh, of launching music, even maybe more so in our day, okay? And so, really, what you had with Smells Like Teen Spirit grunge was a thing for that generation because it was being offered up to them. They knew that song. Maybe they bought that album, but they weren't grunge fans. They were just, that's what was on the pop charts at the time, if that makes sense. Yeah, I suppose that's true. I mean, various clicks may have been right. grunge obsessive, but yeah. They, what, I'm, what I'm kind of leading to is that really this launches Weird Al to another generation because the video, the parody video, won the MTV Video Award, or at least was nominated. Maybe it didn't win, but it was nominated. It was Al's second top 40 hit. So his only other top 40 hit up to this point was Eat It. Right. This is his second top 40 hit, and it has a video that's nominated for an MTV Music Award. So kids that in junior high that don't know anything about Eat It, they don't know anything about I Lost on Jeopardy, they don't know any of those songs, this cements Weird Al for a complete second generation of fans to come. That's why this moment is so important because this is the moment in Weird Al's career where he literally could have gone into, you know, not obscurity, but just his career was done for the most part. Yeah. And now this launches in, into another 30, 30 years of commercial viability. Yeah, well, and, and you know, that pattern's going to repeat again. Right. Um, yes. Because he's, you know, the comeback, he's had ups and downs. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think you're spot on in your commentary there. Um, yeah, no, you know, on the deep end, like like I had said last week, I actually saw him live for this particular release. Um, I love the album. I love Smells Like Nirvana. I do. But it was one that I was fairly confident you were going to have. And really, aside from Smells Like Nirvana, there's 
while I love the album off the deep end, there's nothing on the album that stands out to me as one of, other than Smells Like Nirvana, as one of those quintessential Owl songs. One of the, you know, one of the must-include parodies. So I, I, I did. I skipped right over the album, as I did with UHF. I don't have every album represented, nor nor could I. He has 14 albums, right. but he had 12, right. 12 picks. Um, so I'm, I'm glad you have it. Um, but yeah, it smells like Nirvana. You know, I had mentioned that this song's just six words long is is incredibly meta. So too, it smells like Nirvana. Right. I mean, it is you know just a very. Um, it's another one joke song. It is, but he, but he breaks the fourth wall uh, time and time right. again throughout the song and and throughout the video. I, I I still can envision the marble spilling out of his mouth. <laughs> right. You know, um, it, it's it is without question one of the most important songs to his career it is a fantastic song and as a Nirvana fan you know there, there's an, a deep seated appreciation for it just just in its own right um, but yeah I, I think yeah. you're right Brian. this is the breaking like that's it, it was a perfect place to begin side two because this was the moment if this song if this album wasn't a hit then he was done for yeah and this was the opposite arguably this is his eat it of the 90s yeah and you know this is also one of those first moments where you as I said last week Al is a chameleon you know he can go from gangster rap to heavy metal to you know dance floor hip hop to bubble gum you know teen idols without missing a beat. I mean, he sounds like and performs as all of these genres and, and he, they're interchangeable. He can do it all. Yep. And Smells Like Nirvana is one of those early, earliest examples where he just took a different persona and he ran with it. Yep. And, you know, it, it's so, it is so immediate and so, well, it, it's spot, I hate to always use the word spot on, but that, there's no other way to describe Weird Al's catalog. I mean, he is a spot on cover parody of Smells Like Teen Spirit, and it's just, it was perfect. Yep, sure it was. was. Perfect. So, yeah. No, All right, so let's choice. launch into the second phase of his career. Like you say, there are other, there are other kind of rebirths, um, but, but this, to me, is the most critical point because... Um, by having this whole second generation, he's now cemented himself into a position where he can, for the rest of his life, continue to be relevant with his parodies. Yeah. But it was not the case up to this point. Well, like he needed this. Yeah. And, and you bring up a good point because parents always pass their musical interests to their children, at least at a young age. You know, just riding in the car, especially today with, you know, when we make our own playlists to, to stream or we choose our, our specific niche on satellite radio, you know, our kids grow up listening to what we listen to and sometimes they develop that same love of music shared by the parent. Al is, he, you're right, he cemented his, his place with, with the next generation just through, you know, having really affected the lives of, of those who have now become parents. So it's it, he's, in some ways... Timeless. Yep. So, yep. Yeah, no, it's an excellent point. All right. Well, my first song, I have made it now to Running with Scissors. Uh, you, Which I don't feature any songs from that album. I so. have two. Okay. So this is the only album from uh, my 12 that I include two songs from. Um, as, as you did for In 3D. You, right. you had two songs from In 3D. This might be where I catch up with you. It depends on what albums you go to. But 
We shall see. Uh, the first one I knew you wouldn't have because if ever there has been a song that you knew I would have, it is this. <laughs> this was a no-brainer, I would think, for, on your part. Uh, my, my first selection for side B comes from Running With Scissors. It was the 1999 release by Weird Al Yankovic. It is a parody of Pretty Fly for a White Guy by Offspring. <laughs> right. I have chosen Pretty Fly for a Rabbi. Um, you know, and I, I kind of alluded to this already. One of the many miracles of Al's career is that he's an extremely white man who has managed to do a fair amount of ethnic material, right? Through the years, um, time and again, yet, yet he's remained beloved by his fans. He slipped inside the personas, the costumes, the sonic outfits of, of pop icons in various races, genders, body sizes, ethnicities, yet he's always hung on to his fundamental owlness, for, for lack of a better way to describe it. And you know, with it, the public's love, but also its understanding. I mean, Al's public knows that these songs are done with affection, love, care, and attention to detail. And consequently, you know, they're quick to laugh and slow to take offense. That's always been the case. So here we take a song by The Offspring, right? And it is a song that in itself, in many ways, is a novelty tune. Yeah. And it's about clueless cultural appropriation. Right. right? That's right. what Pretty Fly for a White, white Guy is about. Um, Offspring lead singer and songwriter Dexter Holland, um, who's Pretty Fly for a White Guy inspired the parody, wrote the song to make fun of, you know, basically, you know, a white audience trying to fit in or trying to appropriate, you know, ethnic uh, cultural values. Uh, interestingly, though, Holland also, one, rocked dreadlocks for a very long time. Yes, he did, yeah. Despite being the whitest man in existence. <laughs> okay. And two, he owns his own hot sauce brand, which he named Gringo Bandito, <laughs> whose label features Holland in a sombrero. Oh, boy. So um, maybe this wasn't the best glass house for Holland to hurl his satirical rocks from. To paraphrase the chorus of Pretty Fly for a Rabbi, oy they, oy they. Um, Do you see connection between this song and Amish Paradise? Because now he's tackling religion for a second they, time. Yeah, they are very closely related. Very closely. Uh, but like you say, if anyone can laugh at their own religion, it's Jews. Yeah. Well, and here's <laughs> the thing. Weird Al is not Jewish. No. But overwhelmingly, and before this song, because Jewish humor is something that Al has just always, he's been able to... I, I can't tell you how many people think that he is Jewish. Right. And this song didn't do anything to dissuade that right. that commonly held belief. But I mean, he's he's just so, just his prowess and his knowledge of Jewish humor. I mean, it it it, it has permeated his music from the very beginning. Verin Solfun Dira Blinsa. Say a pretty fly for a rabbi.
humor is just pervasive sure. in the Jewish Jewish culture and Jewish community. So yeah, this song, you know, in many ways should be offensive, and it's not, not in the least, at least not to this Jew. So, you know, we're, we're ten albums into his career at this point, and he finally dips into the bottomless well of humor that is the Jewish joke, specifically the rabbi joke. Okay, he spends the entire song gushing about the titular man of the Lord and the man of the book who is known and loved in this community as a big nachar due to uh, his hard work and good deeds and, and righteous ways. Um, Pretty Fly for a Rabbi doubles, though, as a makeshift encyclopedia of the most commonly employed Yiddish phrases. This is what was most impressive, um, is, is how fluently he, he inserts the Yiddish throughout the song. But it's also a collection of Jewish stereotypes, most notably the ones involving Jews being cheap and bargain hungry. Uh, Al doubles down pretty hard on the line on that line of humor. He brags of of his subject that he does his own accounting. He shops at discount stores. Not just any will suffice. He has to find a bargain because he won't pay retail price. And later in the song, he never acts mashuga and he's hardly a shlemiel. But if you want to haggle, oi, he'll make you such a deal. I mean, th- these are. These are a lot of jokes about Jews, um, you know, loving to haggle, and that they've, you know, they've followed Jews really for centuries. Um, and and here's the thing, though, outdoes them with such affection and care that they they cease to be offensive. I, the faithful recycling of hoary old stereotypes, you know, made less of an impression on me than both those extensive, impressive use of Yiddish and and his mastery not just of the themes of Jewish comedy, but the specific rhythms and inflections as well. Um, as someone who is on record as going nuts over the old jokes, the dad jokes, the street jokes, the gags that have been passed down from one generation to the next, it gives me entirely too much uh, you know, delight that Al fulfills the prophecies of the elders and used his rabbi song to, to lovingly resurrect the old gag about the best part about being a moil, right? The, Moyle, for those that don't know, is the person who performs the baris. Um, you know, the, the old joke is that they get to keep the tip, right? <laughs> Only in this case, the Moyle performs the ritual circumcision, and then the rabbi gets to keep the tip, presumably in the form of both the money parents present to the rabbi and the Moyle for their services, and also, obviously, the, the tip of the penis or the foreskin that's just been removed. A I never lot, thought we'd say the word foreskin yeah, on our podcast. No, right? I mean, yeah, so many people, they do. They think I was Jewish. And as I said, this song would do nothing to discourage that incorrect belief. But but Al speaks the, the language of Jewish humor fluently and with, with the ease and grace of a native speaker. It's it's only too fitting that Al's big foray into the world of Judaism is defined by a very Jewish love of the possibilities of language, Yiddish and English alike. As a Jew, I've always been flattered and charmed by this song rather than insulted. It's it's not just kosher, it's it's worth cavelling about, <laughs> if you will. I mean, it is just, I don't know. This is one I never grow tired of. The only, the last time that I put on anything even remotely close would have been Bar, uh, Werewolf Bar Mitzvah oh, right. in our Halloween <laughs> yeah. episode. I, rock. I just, I, you know, you got to insert it when you can. Um, here's the thing. I was trying to stay one song problem, but the problem is I knew I wanted to use my next pick when I get to it, also from Running With Scissors, 
and there was no way I was going to let Pretty Fly for a Rabbi no, that's, go no. unchecked. So yeah, I figured both would be on there. Yeah, so, so there, there's my... I didn't include anything from the album. Yep, yeah, there's my, my one example of, of double dipping for, for this podcast. So Very good. Your turn. Great song. Yeah, my next pick was Amish Paradise, which, of course, you, um, you picked last week. So I'm going to later on go to the well and pull something from my alternates list. But I'm going to keep in line with the chronology and go to 1994. Where Al, uh, and by the way, there are several compilation albums and several box sets. I think this might have been the first box set. It was called Permanent Record, Al in the Box. Uh, you went with Headline News. I did. I did. You, not, you didn't pick that on your... I, I did not pick it, and I'll, I'll explain why okay, when, all right. you're, when you're done. Um, Headline News um, is a parody of Mmm by Crash Test Dummies. Now, Crash Test Dummies... Say that again? Mmm. Mm. <laughs> Crash Test Dummies... It's like a Campbell's Soup commercial. <laughs> for a mm, lot good. of... Uh, for a lot of our uh, listeners may um, be like a one-hit wonder. And, and even from saying, mm, you may not know what song I'm referring they had, to. They had two. Afternoons and Coffee Spoons. Was a, yeah, but was it a, wasn't. It charted. It, it did, but not like. Not like, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was featured in Dumb and Dumber. It was it was a huge song at the time. Now, Alan and I were familiar with Crash Test Dummies before that. Um, from the WFL days when we right. played their. College their, Radio. Yeah. their uh, original debut album <clears throat> back to the point where my wife and I my, my now wife and I went and saw him at uh, Nautica in as college po- as opposed to your previous wife well <laughs> she was not my wife at the time she was no, we were no, dating no. at the time but we went and saw them at, at Nautica saw them live so that's how, how was that what kind of show did, I mean it was great was it I, I just here's the thing I loved Crash Test Dummies but that low register bass awesome. baritone mm. it almost you know, if you're just listening casually, it almost sounds like he is deliberately trying to use a fake voice when saying. I mean, it's no one is that low. It's very it's, low. It's yeah. incredible how low he is. Yeah, it's one of those Venn diagram bands that we have as as a couple, and especially at that time period when she had her music and I had my music. Right. And you know, Indigo Girls we've talked about is one of those larger Venn diagram bands. This is one of them as well, and probably in the top five. In fact, they're coming to Kent Stage this fall. Really? Yeah. Crash Test Dummies. And Kent Stage is up in Kent, Ohio. It's a very small venue. Um, so we've seen Indigo Girls there. Uh, but yeah, we're probably going to have to check that show out. Now, they were a band that the, the first two albums were, were solid. The third one's a little bit weaker. They've had a few since then. But those first two, I mean, are just incredible. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so this is a song that's relevant. And Weird Al, the, the record company basically says, like they do for a lot of box sets and compilations, is, hey, we need a, an original song. Why? Well, because all of your fans already have all of your music. They're not going to buy your box set if they have all your albums. So you need to prov- you know, provide a new song that um, causes people to, to buy. Of course, this is before streaming when you can just listen to any one song when you wanted to. And so he decides to write, um, hmm, <laughs> or headline news. And it's a little bit different of, of a parody because um, it is musically the same. In fact, the, the video is kind of a, a very similar, almost not quite shot-for-shot shot remake, but in the same same vein. In fact, it was the most expensive video he's ever made. He said he could have recorded two albums for the price that it cost to make the video. Um, but what he does is he takes three different kind of sensational news stories of the last couple of years, and he incorporates them into the song. In the original song, they talk about this family with these different kids and strange things happen to these kids. Well, he brings up these different incidents. So if you were alive in the early 90s, right, you'll remember the Singapore caning, um, the kid that went over to Singapore, and I forget what he did, but he was caned. He was spray painting. Spray painting. Yeah. 
and the Tanya Harding takedown, you know, during the Olympics and the uh, Lorena Bobbitt incident. <laughs> okay. And so he includes uh, these three stories because as according to Weird Al, he quote, felt they weren't getting enough media attention. <laughs> so he includes them in the song. Um, musically, Weird Al returns to manualism once again. The fart noise with the hand. I don't remember the, I remember the screaming. Yes, um, yes. Ah, there's but, all but sorts of different uh, sound effects, yeah. but there's definitely a uh, manualism okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. I solo. Remember, yeah, I remember the three howls of pain, the, the screaming for each of the examples, but I don't remember the fart. Yeah, fart yeah there's, there's all sorts of sound effects. Huh. And, and that's what he does with the video. He basically recreates these different news events um, with these. In, in the original Crash Test Dummies video, when they talk about the stories of these kids, they're almost like play vignettes, like you would see performed from, I don't know, maybe a college drama troupe. And so he recreates that. But, you know, to get the look and the style of the video to parody that was very, very expensive. Um, But they put the money into it. And um, again, it wasn't, you know, a top 10 hit or whatever, but but it fit. In fact, the Carcass Dummies were so honored. Again, they're one of the many bands uh, that felt that it was an honor to be parodied by Weird Al. And um, at least twice, Uh, Weird Al has performed this song with Crash Test Dummies in concert. Once there was this kid who took a trip to Singapore and brought along his spray paint and when he finally came back he had cane marks all over his bottom He said that it was from when the warden whacked it so hard. Once there was this girl who swore that one day she would be a figure skating champion. Finally made it She saw Some other girl who was better And so she hired some guy To club her in the kneecap Yeah, I First of all, the the uh, teenager in Singapore who uh, was disproportionately punished for his, uh, you know, minor transgression, he decided to do a little like vandalism with spray paint, and then he was arrested and caned, uh, horribly caned. His name was Michael Fay. Um, you know, basically, he's still largely considered just a, a dumbass, a, a doofus, if you will, who made some poor choices and. But, but he was guilty as charged, right. you know. The reason I didn't include headline news is because of the other two examples. Because it, we're a quarter of a century removed now mm-hmm. from from those three tabloid headlines. And, you know, our collectively our, our views of both Tanya Harding and Lorena Bobbitt have, have changed significantly as more information was made available. Um, you know, it, it's just our understanding of, of those two sorted figures at the time they were walking punchlines right right? but but our as i said our perspectives have have just shifted tremendously um you know today i mean 
I don't know how many people have seen the the biopic starring Margot Robbie. It's an excellent film. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But you know, we now know that you know. Allison Janney's in it too. Yeah, um, Harding was actually you know a troubled victim of abuse, first from her mother and then her her husband, and Bobbitt uh, was similarly the subject of a sympathetic film actually, but uh, in this case it was a documentary, and we found out um, that she was not the tabloid cartoon of the public imagination who lopped off her cheating husband's penis in a fit of rage, but rather it was a passionate, dignified immigrant um, who was viciously raped and sexually terrorized by a dead-eyed sociopath until she was moved to take violent action against the instrument. All right, way to, take a, way to take a light song from no, 1994 I'm, I'm, and... I'm just, I'm just so saying, <laughs> here's the thing, I love the song. Right. Headline news is, it, it's fantastic. But, but it fits what I'm talking about, how uh, the zeitgeist of the time. It's a time capsule of the times. No, I, I cannot deny that. I, I just, Thank you for taking it to such a dark place. <laughs> well, it, but I'm just... But those were the stories. Yes, you know? yes, yes. And we, we've changed so much. You know, we, we've evolved and de-evolved. We've made great social progress, arguably, and then also regressed egregiously. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, Al's tongue-in-cheek spin through, through the top tabloid tales of the days, it's kind of, it, you know, it, it's consequently a product of a bygone era. And I just, I left it off because even though it's still a fun song even though there's still I see the humor in it and it, it it's damn funny it, it, it is but especially the euphemisms for penis that he uses Mr. Happy Mr. Yeah. Happy and, and Wiener <laughs> yeah um, no it's a great song but I just I didn't feel right including it just because he's making light of two of those three stories okay so you buried. get fat you get fat which I was uncomfortable with and I get mm, the headline news fair enough yeah. Which you were uncomfortable with. So. That's, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> we, just, we just get a mulligan. Not debating. Oh, actually, we always tell people we, we discuss, debate, and defend our choices. Well, we, we never actually debate or defend anything. So I, Not really. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm not debating now either. I love the, the song. I just That's why I didn't include it. So, um, But no, it, it, it's, it's I don't know. It's I've, I think pick. I've debated some hairband choices in the past. I think I've been pretty brutal. Um. I've let my opinion have shine. I, have I included that many hair bands? Uh, no, no, but when you do, I usually that, well, that's true. make some noise. You, you music like, snob. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, no, fair enough. It, it's, it, is, it is. It is a great tune. It, it definitely has a place here on our, our mixtape. I, I, I didn't do it just because I, I'm more sympathetic to the two women at this point. So, um, But no, it's, it's a great song. Um Okay, well, here, here's, we've already alluded to it. I think anyone who's been listening since last week probably knows what comes next. Again, Running With Scissors from 99. It is a, again, a lyrical adaptation. That's what we were calling them last week. Right. <laughs> it is a lyrical ad- adaptation of my favorite, favorite song of all time, that being American Pie by Don McLean. And I'm talking, of course, about The Saga Begins. Um. You know, before the the much anticipated Star Wars revival began with the release of 1999's Episode One: The Phantom Menace, Yankovic did his research. He combed through internet spoilers and he splurged on a pre-screening so that the saga begins could be released just after the film. And he somehow squeezed the needlessly complicated plot of the movie <laughs> into five and a half minutes of of just comic, you know, genius. 
it, it's an absolute work of genius. Who else could have found a way to fit the word midichlorian into a song? It's also right. when he, I think, shaves his mustache for the first time for the video. Well, it's it, it was the second time, and then it, he hasn't regrown it since. Okay. The first time he did it was actually for Ricky. Oh, the, yeah. The well, video, I didn't think he had a mustache Ricky. at the time. Oh, yeah. oh did he? Yeah. Okay. Uh, in fact, for Ricky, um, yeah, he eschewed all of his, his physical... Um, trademarks. He he his hair is slicked into a pompadour. He shaved the mustache and he goes without glasses for the Ricky video. Of course, today he doesn't wear glasses and he no longer sports the mustache. I mean, he still has long hair. Yeah, still has the long hair. But um, yeah, I, he, you know, well, first of all, the, the Phantom Menace, the movie was critically panned. <laughs> okay, but our spoof told from Obi-Wan Kenobi's point of view was praised with the humor possibly enhanced thanks to the movie's shortcomings really since its release on um, Weird Al's 10th studio album um, you know it's rare to see a live performance where Al does not break out into the saga begins and you know timing timing has always been of supreme importance for Weird Al uh, we just got done talking about the zeitgeist and you know being in the moment so for close to four decades, Al has had this uncanny gift for capturing the, the cultural zeitgeist, you know, and he's almost Dick Clark or Barry Gordon-like in his, his genius for discerning what artists and songs will endure and which will be forgotten. Um, Al likes to parody new songs, and he made an exception twice, once with Lola, okay, just as he dipped into the big American songbook to repurpose American Pie as the musical backing for this song. Both of those examples were for Star Wars-themed songs. Mm, that's true. Now, now he has done it a few times uh, as well. I mean, Piano Man was not a new song, obviously, when he does the Peter Parker, you know, the Spider-Man tribute. Um, but overwhelmingly, you know, it's both Star Wars films are songs that were not, you know, major hits at the, at the moment. Um, there's a certain... You know, synchronicity in two of the most popular and ubiquitous story songs in American musical history being used to recount two of the most popular and ubiquitous stories in movie history, or alternately one giant story with countless iterations. Um, listening to the song this week as I prepared for the episode, I had to admit, I, I found myself oddly nostalgic for The Phantom Menace, um, which is a little weird because the movie's awful. <laughs> but I've warmed to the prequels a bit. Have, have you found that that's been true for you? Well, like my son, who's 19 now, he has explained to me, like, even though I right, was not as happy with them as I hoped to have been, right. my son loves them, but he understands it from a nostalgic point of view, too. Yeah. He understands there are obviously issues with the film, but growing up with them, watching them as a kid, we watched them together. He has fond memories of that, so I get that. Yeah, I mean, when I watch the, I still watch them. When I watch the prequels now, I take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, um, the acting was horrible, but I think that's because the dialogue was horrible. Well, yeah, and it's an awful it, screenplay. It just comes down to the fact that George Lucas used to be to the point where he wasn't big enough to not be challenged on things. You know, he had people to tell them this isn't working or this is working. And once you know, once you finance a film yourself because you're rich enough to do that, then everybody becomes your yes man or woman, and um, you end up right. sometimes with a less than desirable product. So. No, it is, it is what it is. I mean, now Star Wars has grown into such a huge, you know, with all the spinoffs, and sometimes they get it really right. Like Disney's Mandalorian is just, they got it 
hundred percent right. Yeah. I haven't watched Bad Batch yet, but I'm hearing good things. Um, you know, and, and certain things, you know, who knows? We have the Obi-Wan Kenobi show coming up. We have, um, we have a lot of things to look forward to. Have, have you heard, there is a lot of speculation that they are about to make the sequel trilogy uh, not canon. Oh yeah, I Mark, Mark yeah. Hamill allegedly, I, uh, yeah, you know, right, right, allegedly yeah. is in talks to film a new sequel. Trilogy. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's it seems like a pretty big move. Yeah, but the, very the, bold move. The sequels are a whole other thing. But going back to the prequels, I'll say this: at least what that did was it opened the door to the greater Star Wars universe because up to the prequel moment, all we had were, were the original trilogy. We had some Star Wars novels, right, and the holiday special, you know, yeah, and that was it. And that just opened the door to what's become this vast universe. Some of it good some of it great some of it not so good but it's still a world that continues to expand and continues to feel lived in and hey that's a world I want to be a part of yeah well maybe it's more accurate to say that I'm nostalgic for the Phantom Menace as, as a cultural event right you know sure um, just that, that incredible wave of excitement and anticipation it created um, and then the you know obviously the crashing disappointment that followed but you know, nerds didn't quite have the stranglehold on pop culture back then that they do now. These days, pretty much everything seems custom made for nerds. Fanboys are the mainstream. <laughs> but in 99, Phantom Menace still felt like something the gods had created for the fans. Right. You know, and it seems appropriate then, Out chose as the vehicle for this anthem a song that was itself steamed in nostalgia. Right. Uh, McLean's oldie station favorite, you know, it was released in 1971 not long after the 60s ended, and it looked back wistfully on another of the many moments in our society where we lost our collective innocence, that tragic plane crash that took the life of Buddy Holly in 59. So needless to say, when it comes to the saga begins, the force of nostalgia is strong with this one. Um, yet at the time of its release, the saga begins was, if anything, almost suspiciously timely. You know, I mean, it, the movie was released and boom, the, the, there was the song and the song was 100% right, storyline. Right. Um, the song came out just a little over a month after the film was released when the cultural consensus hadn't yet devolved from, well, this is not quite what we were expecting, but it looks good. Uh, and, you know, the special effects are at least impressive to this is the greatest insult to the franchise since the Star Wars Holiday Special. Well, that's <laughs> Jar Jar being specifically, well, but yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, with the saga begins, Al's timing was perfect. Again, he was latching onto the hottest and most lucrative thing in pop culture, something that he had a long distinguished happy history with doing already. Um, and, you know, he alchemized the, that, you know, just the stoic, you know, tinny nature of the Phantom Menace's plot and characters, two of the film's many, many fatal flaws, into the musical and comedy gold for one of his best loved and most enduring songs. Um, you know, the plot of the movie not to get too too much further into it it's just terribly convoluted it's overly complicated it's bogged down with unnecessary subplots of characters and midichlorians and the federation and taxation and, and Jar Jar Banks and Jar Jar Banks yet on the saga begins Al transforms Lucas's leaden mythology and hopelessly clumsy plotting into a freewheeling light on its feet adventure story that skips along merrily where its inspiration lumbered I mean, Al undercuts the pretension and self-seriousness of what he's singing about by describing Lucas's melodrama in hilariously casual language. And he says, you know, of the film's climax, in the end, some of the Gungans died, some ships blew up, some pilots fried, a lot of folks were croaking, the battle droids were broken. 
and that's as layman right. <laughs> as you can get. And it's, it's just, it's, it's perfect. A long, long time ago, in a galaxy far away, Naboo was under an attack. And I thought me and Qui-Gon Jinn could talk the Federation into maybe cutting them a little slack. But their response, it didn't thrill us. They locked the doors and tried to kill us. We escaped from that gas, then met Jar Jar and Boss Nass. We took a bongo from the scene and we went to feed to see the Queen. We all wound up on tattooing. That's where we found this boy. Oh my, my, this here Anakin guy. Maybe Vader someday later. Now he's just a small fry. And he left his home and kissed his mommy goodbye. Saying soon I'm gonna be a Jedi. Soon I'm gonna be a Jedi. So how succeeded actually where George Lucas failed, right? <laughs> and unlike the racist stereotype based physical comedy of Jar Jar, you know, the saga begins genuinely made people laugh. And unlike the Phantom Menace, the saga begins and ended up pleasing Star Wars fans in the short and long term. Um it might just be the element of the Phantom Menace that has aged the best and endured the most. So you know, given the importance of trilogies within the Star Wars universe and the success of his previous two Star Wars anthems, I can't have a wonder if Al has ever attempted to turn his Star Wars ovoir into a proper trilogy. Hmm, yeah. You know, he's got enough new movies to work with and to be inspired by. The Mandalorian would be ripe for it. It would, yeah. And and there would definitely be a rapturous online audience for a new Star Wars themed Weird Al Yankovic song, but... I don't know. As George Lucas can attest, there are all kinds of dangers in revisiting past triumphs decades later. So, um, but yeah, I, I the reason I went with this over Yoda. Not only was I fairly certain you had Yoda, but the movie is so. You know, it, it's just. I, again, I think that Star Wars fans our age have warmed to the prequels, but it was so disappointing, and it was so panned, and it was so. People were so angry about it, yet the song, you know, by by Al that that you know told that same story, remains one of his most loved songs. And and the fact that he was right there, practically on opening day, with this five and a half minute tribute, and and set to American Pie no less. To me, it just you know it's a story that had to be shared, and it was just I don't know. I, I thought that's the one I'm going to go with. So. Yeah, no, definitely. We had to have it. That's the one I went with. So. Perfect. All right, your We'll turn. have another podcast someday where we talk about Star Wars. There we go. <laughs> oh, God help our listeners. We'll never finish that one. It'll be hours long. Well, for my next pick, I, I mentioned when we discussed Thomas Paradise and, and Headline News, how Weird Al really began at this point of his career to kind of tune into the cultural aspects of the time when choosing the subjects for his parodies, right? Early Weird Al... You know, food and television, like we mentioned. Late Weird Al, now he's looking, you know, at this point in his career, maybe cultural um, events or cultural aspects, maybe new technology. Later on, we'll talk about the politics. But this is an example of how he has really latched on to something that forever changed the way we would uh, we would shop. 
also on my alternates list. eBay. Yep. Awesome. <laughs> yes. There's my third alternate you've taken care of. For All me. right. Uh, 2003 from the album Poodle Hat. Am I actually ahead of you now with Poodle Hat? Uh, I think I'm ahead of you now. We are tied because my next pick is from Poodle Hat. All right. Um, Poodle Hat 2003 and the song is called eBay. And it's a parody of I Want It That Way by Backstreet Boys. This song... I'm going to put in my top five because it is brilliant. It is it just hits all the right notes, um, literally, and um, of course um, lyrically. And so, you know, not only is this a fun take on the Backstreet Boys smash hit when the boy bands were huge. Of course, this is the time period when when the boy band. It seems like there's always a, a every generation has a boy band phase, you know. But this was this generation's boy band phase. But synonymous with this first decade of, of the new century and the internet when the internet ceases to be just kind of a novelty thing and when people actually begin to use it. But what's great about it is the take on, yeah, it's this great uh, technology sometimes allows you to do great things and yet we use it for the most ridiculous things. Yeah. And so here, this basically, right, eBay, which still exists, of course, but at the time was like the world's biggest garage sale. And like any garage sale, we usually end up buying stuff that we really don't need. In fact, he even mentions in the song stuff that you would normally throw away <laughs> is stuff that we're buying. And so he just named, he name checks, and this is what I like about it. It's songs in 2003, and we've established how he's now, you know, now accepted by the, the, the next generation. And yet all the stuff that he's buying in this song is stuff from the original decade when he was popular, right? Like a Dukes of Hazard ashtray. An ALF alarm clock, Pac-Man fever lunchbox. I have the same <laughs> same list, yeah. Right. And so whereas the new generation um, accepts this, uh, the humor in the terms of, a, it's a, you know, about eBay and a, about something that's part of their generation, at least unique to their generation, um, we love it in our generation because it calls back to all these nostalgic items of our youth. Oh, it's a virtual who's who of genetics <laughs> memorabilia. I, yeah. I call it, 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 it's like a Russian nesting doll of nostalgia. Oh, I like right, that. so when you listen, like that. when you listen to it now today, eBay is somewhat nostalgic. But then, the, the, what he's buying on eBay is nostalgic from you in a previous generation. And also, he includes references, new terms, right? That came about. Every new technology brings along new jargon. Um, terms like sniping, PayPal being the highest bidder, Beanie Babies, new with the tag, of course. Yeah. Um, and like I said, how this is stuff you would normally just throw away. Um, I wrote down. Bravo, Weird Al Bravo. This is one of his masterpieces. Yeah. Now, I must admit that I, too, would bid on the original Farrah Fawcett poster. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that one I'll give him. But, you know, I don't know that I need a Kleenex used by Dr. Dre. Uh, you know, what's interesting about this is that eBay is actually sandwiched on the album between Al's loving tribute to Bob Dylan, mm -hmm. a song titled Bob, and Frank Zappa, you know, the song in question being Genius in France who are two of the most abrasive and divisive icons in the history of American music, right? So true, the mere existence of boy bands that appeal overwhelmingly to girls, tweens, and teens have always you know, enraged a certain segment of the populace. eBay, though, is the antithesis of Frank Zappa. It's just interestingly placed on, yes, the, on yes. the album. And you know, let's, let's call it what it is. I Want It That Way is a masterpiece of corporate manufactured pop craftsmanship. You know, it's not just clean and polished, it's pristine. Um, all boy bands are. And because it's not just a pop song, it's a consumer product. Right. And as consumer products go, it's just about perfect. It's it's spurious, to be sure. Authentic music is shoes auto-tuning. <laughs> but Al benefits tremendously from building his parody on the sturdy foundation of one of the manufactured pop songs 
of the past 20 years. And the fact that it is a commercial product and he's singing about the purchase of commercial products, right. that's not lost on me. I mean, that there, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek, uh, you know, just very layered statements being made in this Yeah, song. there's so much going on here. Yeah, it, it's just, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. A used pink bathrobe, a rare mint snow globe, a smurf TV tray. Bought on eBay. My house is filled with this crap. Shows up in bubble wrap most every day. What I bought on eBay. Tell me why I need another pet. And, and again, speaking of authenticity, Al, who again, astonishingly, is not Jewish, he actually makes sublime use of the Yiddish phrase tchotchkes yes, in the song, you know, and finds an ideal rhyme with it and sell me your watch, please. So, you know, it's a line he delivers with a hilariously out of place sincerity. So, um, yeah, now that is my third alternate that you've now named. I may not need to go to my alternate solicitation. But, but if, if, if <laughs> so. I have to tell people, like, if I want to represent the brilliance of Weird Al in a few songs, right? Amish Paradise, White and Nerdy, eBay, and then one one to come here that I'm going to talk about. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's it's just, just so good. So good. Yeah. No, without question. Okay. Well, my next song is, a, is another song from Poodle Hat. Um, well, it's my first song from Poodle Hat, but of course, eBay comes from the same album. Um, you know, it's 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 a song that was a parody of Eminem's chart-topping hit "Lose Yourself," and it is rightly thought of as a modern satirist classic. It's it, you know, there, there's just a heap of early 2000 television references and a narrative that documents sofa surfing of the highest order. <laughs> okay, I'm talking, of course, about Couch Potato. Yep. Um, you know, Lose Yourself Looms Large is one of Eminem's most serious and important songs. I mean, it's an adrenaline-pumping, heartstrings-tugging uh, inspirational anthem from the rapper's brilliant semi-autographical hit movie, Eight Mile. Um, and it's characterized by unrelenting intensity and great urgency. Couch Potato still s- sounds intense on a sonic level, of course, but lyrically, it's about the least urgent ever. You know, it's just watching lots of bad television. Um... Of course, you know, the wonderful thing about being an American is that we always have the option of sitting on our lazy butts and watching TV, right? Another statement Al is trying to make here. Um, and, we, and we do it until our brains do turn to mush, as the song lyric says. That's kind of the, the key to our greatness. You know, Wakanda has vibranium and we have the office. You know, they're pretty much equally powerful. But when, when Al parodies a pop giant like Eminem, sometimes the musical DNA gets combined, kind of like the Fly style, right? Uh, resulting in a mutation that's half Al, half, uh, half his inspiration. Because Couch Potato, uncharacteristically, contains not just one gay joke, but two. 
which I always found really interesting because it's so out of character for him. Uh, Al laments first that King of Queens jumped the shark the first minute. I can't believe Richard Simmons ain't in it. And then later he complains, I only watched Will and Grace one time, one day. Wish I hadn't because Tebow now thinks I'm gay. Right? Um, again, he's forgiven for everything that he does. And and this, I, you know, it's it's totally within the character of Marshall Mathers. So it's it's... But but I always found it really interesting that he would go in that direction. He, I find that, you know, in the later albums he gets more and more daring. I think, and sometimes I wonder if that's good or bad, or or if it really doesn't matter. Well, I you think know? he gets, like I said, he gets more political um, in a way. I would say for the better. I, I don't I don't know that this song again is made today because of those lines. Yeah, and agreed. Yeah. I don't think they're egregious to the point where they should be canceled, right? But I think it is an interesting middle ground. Yeah. Now, I, I must say it's easy to imagine Eminem rhyming Simon Cowell and Disembowel. <laughs> okay? and, and making fun of walking punchlines like Anna Nicole Smith, Ozzy Osbourne, the two Coreys, Rob Schneider, Jennifer Lopez. I mean, that's totally, I, I can see that. Um, you know, a, a lot of Al's television songs are timeless because he's singing about old television shows that have passed the test of time, regardless of quality. But, you know, here you just have this infectious song um, that really is very dated. It's a lot like an earlier song that he recorded called I Can't Watch This. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's it's less timeless, um, less timeless than it is a, a sonic time capsule of what was on television when it was recorded. It's kind of like an audio TV guide listing with jokes um, and, and listening this week I was struck by just how much what I was singing about in this song has already been long forgotten which is really interesting even shows that were huge pop culture events at the time like the Osbournes they've completely faded from but again it comes memory. back it's, it's a time capsule it it's is. a it's an audio time capsule all these times past yeah so you know what sets Couch Potato apart from the thematically similar I can't watch this though is its sense of comic escalation you know, we begin with our boob tube addicted singer complaining about actual shows and ratchet up the absurdity and, and the anger until he's threatening uh, to, you know, tie the executives up and make them watch all that junk until their heads explode just like scanners. That's, that's the line from the song. And there's no such thing as a bad David Cronenberg reference. So, you know, props to, to Al on that one. Yeah, Couch Potato suffered commercially, though, because Eminem puzzlingly and perplexingly refused to allow Al to make a music video for hmm, the song. Interesting. Um, you know, in, in fact, the entire album, Poodle Hat, remains one of Al's less successful albums commercially, uh, due in part to the absence of a music video. And, and he actually did not release as a single any song from this album. Hmm. I don't know if you... I, yeah, I, I know Because I, I, I looked and I looked... I, my first time looking at the charts, I thought, that can't be right. But not one song was released as a single from from this one and you know lose yourself is about making the most of every opportunity right um but eminem's strange veto of a music video ensured that commercially at least al missed his moment because couch potato is very explicitly about television and it, it i think it would have benefited from an attention-grabbing music video but you know alas it wasn't meant to be making couch potato really one of the great what-ifs of of al's career look if you had one shot to sit on your lazy butt and 
and watch all the TV you ever wanted until your brain turned to mush. Would you go for it or just let it slip? Yo. Remote is ready, eyes wide, palms are sweaty The Flintstones on the TV already, Wilma and Betty No virgin, the channel surfing and I'm HD ready So I flip, garbage is all I'm getting The Simon Cow, who folks wanna disembowel He opens his mouth, always says something foul They're dying, wow, wannabes are crying now He votes them out, time to throw in the towel Shows based on reality, oh, the humanity Oh, Aussie's family show, love profanity, whoa Oh, dogs that crap and pee home of depravity? No, they live happily, yo! Plus the Ali G show and celebrity mole Oh, and there's Anna Nicole, she's scaring me Look, mono cavities, oh, it's a station break Better go out to the kitchen and microwave something You're gonna lose your mind watching TV They told me, they told me, but I'd still tune in every show My cable gets C-SPAN TV, land and HBO The Travel Channel, Discovery, and Lifetime You're gonna lose your mind watching TV Song. Oh yeah, and it's just it's it's hilarious. At least Eminem let him make the song. Yeah, yeah, Eminem never had an issue with the song, but he just for whatever reason he thought that the video was going to tarnish his career. Um, I don't, but it, it never made sense to me, really. I mean, it's you know, it's as far removed from Eminem's song thematically as is imaginable. But yeah, it really, Pluto Hat sales were way down again very very much like poker party before it right. um and it, it just i don't know it, it was just a really interesting choice on eminem because he was all for the the parody and then just put an abrupt you know halt to to the video that would accompany it hmm. so but Good there choice. you go all right well the next one we referred to several times i'm assuming you have it maybe you don't um but it is again i it's the high mark. It's the top three. It's white and nerdy. We have a match. All right. We finally have a match. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not there yet, but we have a match. Okay. Uh, we're up to 2006, straight out of Linwood. So we're on the same album now. We've caught up. We are. We're on the same album. Uh, it's a parody of Riding by Chameleon Air uh, featuring Crazy Bone. And like Amish Paradise, like eBay, this one is just, just it's perfect because it hits all the right notes, right? It's a parody of a huge song at the time. It's it's well performed. It's well you know well written, well performed, well recorded, um, but just fits just line after line of the zeitgeist of the time, right? Um, this is a, a moment when, of course, we featured this already on the black and white episode, right? So we already talked about it, but we'll talk about it kind of in a different light here. Um, it, it, this is when millennial geek chic finally became a thing, which which. I resent a little bit because I remember, okay, I remember in college, I bought a t-shirt, I don't know where I bought it, somewhere, probably one of the head stores. Um, Obi-Wan Kenobi was on the back, and it was a Star Wars New Hope with Obi-Wan and, and so forth. And a guy college I know said to me, aren't you concerned about what people are gonna think when you wear that? Now, I, I give a crap about what people think about me, but I remember thinking at the time where, yeah, I forgot that like Star Wars wasn't like really the cool thing because it was before the prequels. Like people our generation liked Star Wars, but it wasn't, you know, it hadn't kind of come full circle yet. And yeah, even though we all liked Star Wars and we watched it and we all had the toys as kids, it, it wasn't to the point where people were wearing the t-shirts and it, it wasn't really a part of, 
It was right before that. It was just like yeah. right before that began to launch. No, and I, I agree with all that, but the trilogy never went away. And it pe- didn't go away. People always wore t-shirts for fa- their favorite films. They, or, yeah, but it still wasn't, yeah, it was still kind of seen as geeky, I guess is what I'm saying. Okay. If you were trying That's to fair. be cool in college, you weren't wearing a Star Wars t-shirt. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And what I love is- I and, definitely and, was not cool in college. <laughs> then, no. <laughs> so. What I love and what I kind of resent a little bit is- you know, in our generation, it was kind of looked down upon. I mean, I admit, I was I kept all my Star Wars toys. Uh, I began to look and see what they were valued. I began to collect other things. Um, of course, we had friends that collected comic books. Uh, these are all things now in the millennial generation, which are just seen as another subgroup of culture, but was seen as a nerdy, geeky, not the cool thing to do from our culture, okay? And when the millennial kind of embraced that, where basically millennials said, I don't care what you think. I like these stories. I like comic books. I like science fiction movies. I like fantasy novels. I like Lord of the Rings. Um, and, and that's what thing. The rebirth of Star Wars with the prequels and, of course, Lord of the Rings becoming a huge hit fan helped all of this along, right? The internet helped this along because whereas, you know, if we were geeky in some aspects growing up, we didn't know a lot of people that could share that with us. Yeah, and we all liked Star Wars, but there weren't too many people like keeping their toys and you know collecting them, hoping someday to be able to display them or whatever. Right. Um, this just put it all in the open, and people on the internet could find each other, and it just came up with this new confidence that that generation had about geek culture or geek chic that we weren't necessarily allowed to have. And so that's just my long introduction to saying this song celebrates geek culture um, in a way that people can just be proud to be different. Escher, that's my favorite MC. Keep your 40 out, just have an Earl Grey tea. My rims never spin to the contrary. You'll find that they're quite stationary. All of my action figures are cherry. Stephen Hawking's in my library. My MySpace page is all totally pimped out. Got people begging for my top eight spaces. Yo, I know pie to a thousand places. Ain't got no grills, but I still wear braces. I order all of my sandwiches with mayonnaise. I'm a whiz, a minesweeper, I can play for days. Once you see my sweet moves, you're gonna stay amazed. My fingers moving so fast, I'll set the place ablaze. There's no killer rap, I haven't run. At Pascal, well, I'm number one. Do vector calculus just for fun. I ain't got a gap, but I got a soldering gun. Happy Days is my favorite theme song. I can sure kick your butt in a game of ping pong. I'll ace any trivia quiz you bring. I'm fluent in JavaScript as well as Klingon. Well, I get to go to my alternates list at least once. And because of that, I'm going to insert one of my alternates before my next legitimate uh, selection on my list of 12 because I'm still going to go chronologically. This is pick five for you, correct? Uh, This is pick four. Four. Four? Okay, yeah, 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 because I got two more. Okay. Um, So... um, and this is going to replace White and Nerdy, which I had not actually gotten to yet. But uh, my next song is going to be Trash Day. It's another song from Poodle Hat. Uh, it's a parody of Hot in Here by Nelly uh, from 2003. Now, I, I got to tell you, as a DJ, I promise you that pop music from the early 2000s does not get much better than Nelly's Hot in Here. Okay, It's not a song that you or I would... You know, but on, we're not going to be rabid Nelly fans by any stretch of the imagination. But Nelly's booty shaking tribute to nakedness is one of those irresistible anthems that, while the first time around, 
and somehow somehow they they never wear out their welcome, no matter how often you hear them. So it, it may not be high art, in fact, it's the farthest from it, but it's pop art at its finest. And to this day, if someone says it's hot or it's hot in here or it's getting hot in here, I had to I, I had to admit I have to physically fight the urge to answer with an enthusiastic shout of "So take off all your clothes." which would get me in trouble in some circles. but Well, yeah, considering you're a teacher. Yeah, so I don't do that. Uh, but, you know, it, like Outcast's Hey Ya, or Usher's Yeah, or Flowrider's Low, uh, Hot in Here is, is nothing short of a perfect song for the dance floor. It, it just is. And I would not hesitate to put the song on a list of my top 50 hip-hop songs of all time. Zeitgeist capturing collaboration. You know, it, it just, it would make that all-time list. Um, and for this parody, Al took a song that was dirty in the sense of very explicitly being about sex and nakedness and made it dirty in the most literal way imaginable so that it's about the kind of mess that would require the full resources of the EPA to clean it up. (laughs) Okay. In Trash Day, Al slips inside the undoubtedly foul-smelling skin of a disgusting slob whose unwillingness to take out the trash has caused a rift in his relationship with a significant other. So as with Hot in Here, a lot of the fun here comes from the battle of the sexes interplay between male and female voices. But where the vibe in Nelly's original is one of playful attraction, Trash Day substitutes comic revulsion. So instead of sounding intrigued and turned on, the female backup singer here sounds physically repulsed when she pleads with our pig pen-like anti-hero, hey you disgusting slob, you better take that trash out. Okay. Um, you know, in Hot in Here, Nelly teases his overheated, overdressed object of desire. Um, he says, I got a friend with a pole in the basement. And when she responds with a mildly indignant what? He responds half jokingly, I'm just kidding, unless you're going to do it. But in Al's clean yet dirty version, the, the sordid offer has changed to some Lysol, some Comet, I got a mop and it's got your name on it then gets just as negative a response as Nelly's offer, so Al too quickly demurs, I'm just kidding, dog on it, unless you're going to do it. So, you know, in, in place of the original's uh, lascivious grunts of sensual pleasure, Trash Day substitutes very mad magazine cries of, Egh. and in place of Nelly's half-sung, half-wrapped litany of, of come-ons, Al offers such surprisingly sophisticated rhymes as generating, biodegrading, and violating, resuscitating, or, or rather those would be surprisingly sophisticated rhymes for a song about an unholy mess from anyone other than Al, who has proven, you know, a proven track record, really, on, on writing about silly or dumb things in a bracingly smart fashion.
it's just an amazingly funny song. And while it isn't as perfect as its inspiration, how could it be? You know, Trash Day um, is nearly as irresistible. The subject matter may literally be hot garbage, but it's another triumph of craftsmanship from Al, who really can transform seemingly anything, anything at all, into comic gold. So I did not think I'd get to that one, but all right. you opened up a place in my alternates. Not a fan of the original, but I like the, uh, like the yeah, parody. It, oh, it's, it, it's an incredible parody. So I am going to throw it in there. And it is your turn. All right. This is my last pick on my original list. This is where this is where it all starts getting political. And, you know, I know some people say everything's political. Can we just take a break? And, you know, comedy and humor is supposed to take us away from politics so we can quit being so divisive and we can kind of relax a little bit. But, as you know, satire and politics go hand in hand. And while I never like didn't never thought poorly of Weird Al for not being political, I'm. It's nice to see that by 2006 he begins to kind of venture in that area. I'm guessing the song. What song? Party in the CIA. No. No. No, that's later. That's uh, 2011 that's, actually. Okay. But that obviously is political as well, and that's on my uh, alternates list, which so, I may get to. It's on my alternate. This is Canadian list. Idiot. Oh. Off a of straight out of Linwood. Okay. I was not thinking Canadian Idiot at all. <laughs> and it's a parody, of course, of Green Day's American Idiot. Yep. I mean, come on now. Who doesn't love Canada? Who does not love Canadians? They are the nicest people on the planet. They have universal health care, and they export some of the greatest musical acts and comedians to rival our best homegrown talent. What, right? are, you, what are you talking about, Willis? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> this satirical classic exposes American xenophobia for our neighbors up north. Not surprisingly, many American listeners did not understand the irony, which is in and of itself ironic. Yes. Okay? So if you take time to listen to the lyrics of the song, it's brilliant, because really what it's doing is it's showing how our attitudes towards Canada, when I say our, I mean a certain political mindset in this country. Um, really, it, it, it's satire at its best. You know, Weird Al's always done humor, and sometimes on satire, this is satire at its finest, right? So when, 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 when the narrator here is making fun of Canada for being nice and for having universal health care, you know, some people are listening to the song going, yeah, yeah. Not just, they don't, just don't get the joke. Uh, and the fact that, that it ends with, break your nose and they'll tell you, say sorry, tell me what kind of freaks that are that polite, I got to mean they're all up to something. So quick, before they see it coming, time for a preemptive strike. Again, going with the politics, this is going to feed in later to party in the CIA, which I think I'll get to because I do have one more or at least two alternatives left. Um, it is. It's this idea of America, right? This idea of we as a culture feel like the American and, you know, I get it. American exceptionalism. America has done a lot of great things for the world and innovation and technology and the fact that we were able to take a model of, of, of a Republican democracy and make it stable for 200 some years. But in many cases, we got to a point where if it's not American, if it's foreign to us, then it automatically has to be bad. It automatically has to be somewhat, you know, it's communist for some reason. And he plays with this idea to perfection.
the parodies didn't get political, but Al's originals did. Even dating back to Off the Deep End, I, I think of Trigger Happy. Yeah, yeah, as true, an example. True, and that one is just. That you're right. His originals. I guess yeah, I, what yeah. I mean is, is political. There's yeah. parodies haven't gotten as political yeah, until no, the and, end. And you're absolutely right about that. Um, Christmas yeah. at Ground Zero is a good example. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. I um, I wasn't even thinking Canadian idiot. So yeah. The Night Sand Went Crazy, which is the most irreverent uh, Christmas song ever. Right. Love it. <laughs> yeah. If we do a if we do a holiday special this season, I'm curious what you're going to throw on because your irreverent choices. I think most of them are probably taken. You you had a couple of them last time around. This uh this this song is by the way loved by Canadians, right? They're oh, so they're so good humored yeah. in the sense too that this is where he walks that line. He's bringing out all these Canadian stereotypes, right? And you know talking about hockey and talking about you know cuisine, mac, mac and cheese, you know the yeah. mac and cheese, crap dinner, and 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 the way that they you know so. You can almost see where somebody listening to this might feel like it's a rallying cry against our neighbors to the north. So he, he in a way, is able to have fun with the stereotypes of Canadians, um, but at the same time make a point about America, American xenophobia. And that, yeah. that, that's, that's not an easy task to pull off, and he does it brilliantly that's here with Canadian idiot. But, you know, here, here's what, what is just so incredible to me is that all the Canadian stereotypes – None of them are bad things, <laughs> right? You know yeah. the idea that they actually go to the mall with—is it mall? I, I yeah, yeah. The without thing. their guns. Without their guns, right? I'm like, that—that's true. It's a stereotype, <laughs> but that's not a bad thing. You know, <laughs> I, you don't need to take a gun to the mall in Canada. Right. Um, right. Yeah, no, I just—I I love the song. I didn't even when you said political, I wasn't. Going yeah, that no, direction. I just—he's he's poking fun at Americans. He's—he's—he's he's, he's poking fun at Canadians in a fun way. Yeah. And no, the, the whole the whole time making a, making a nice uh, satirical point. Yeah, no, it's a great tune. All right, well, my number eleven. This is second to me. Uh, to me, it's it's second only to Amish Paradise. Okay. Okay. Um, it is from Straight Outta Linwood, and it is a parody of Trapped in the Closet by R. Kelly. All right. This one is called Trapped in the Drive Through. <laughs> you familiar with this one? Uh huh. Oh my. The first time I heard this, I I nearly pissed myself. I, I could not stop laughing. It was the funny because literally, my wife and I had just had this entire conversation before I pressed play. I mean, it was literally every night of my life, and it is it is just I, I never grow tired of this. And at eleven minutes long, I could spend my day just playing it on a loop. It is that. Funny. I guess I didn't know it was a parody, which is why I made oh, okay. it because yeah. I don't know R. Kelly's music. Okay, yeah, no, it, it's it's a parody of of well, well, let me let me take a step back. First of all, if you're a parodist, I mean, R. Kelly's trapped in the closet. It 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 proves an irresistible yet daunting target for spoofery. Um, the R&B superstar and sex cult leader's epic story suite is just this delirious, hypersexualized musical melodrama. Whose complete lack of self-awareness tenders it, or renders it rather, renders it perfect for for satirical puncturing. Okay, yet trapped in the closet is such a complete exercise in surreal, unselfconscious self-parody that it renders outside parody redundant. Really, so how can anyone song make R. Kelly's uh, horny storyteller aesthetic seem more ridiculous than the probable sex offender's own ouvoir does? That's the question. And how can you exaggerate something that already exists in a style of crazed hyperbole and delirious 
intentional excess? Well, Al's answer was to go in the opposite direction. You know, R. Kelly wrote and performed this crazy maximalist story suite of bizarre pulp fiction. And Al transformed it into a song about nothing. Very Seinfeldian, actually. It's, it's literally a song about nothing. Or rather, it's the most banal possible subject an ordinary guy on an ordinary day who goes out for fast food and ends up getting his order slightly wrong, you know, could be. I mean, it's, it's literally, it is just the picture-perfect example of the mundane. Which, I guess, just, uh, I just spoiled the song's riveting narrative there. <laughs> but but um, I, I know how people feel about spoilers, regardless. Trapped in the drive-thru finds out singing about his oldest and most favorite muse, food. For the first time in a long while, but, but here the context is decidedly different, okay? Because food songs tend to be our simplest songs, which we've already kind of alluded to. And that, and that makes sense considering they experienced their heyday in Al's first decade as a pop star and recording artist. But Trapped in the drive through in sharp contrast, is tremendously sophisticated from a conceptual standpoint. The underlying joke of the parody is that there are no hard jokes. I mean, it's not quite anti-humor, but it does find Al at his most sneakily deconstructionist, really. Because we begin with that distinctively oddly hypnotic dripping faucet groove and our hilariously mundane storyteller sharing the mundane details of yet another boring night at home. It's early evening, he's zoned out on the couch watching TV when his wife ambles in to ask the question, really of very little importance, are you hungry? And then the, you know, from there it just, it takes off on this just escalating, uh, you know, this just continually escalating song of, of confrontation that is about nothing. It's just, it's brilliant. It's, I, I don't want to give too much away for those that may not have heard the song, but, but it's just, to me, it, it doesn't get any better than this. Seven o'clock in the evening, watching something stupid on TV. I'm zoned out on the sofa when my wife comes in the room and sees me. And she says, is this behind the music with Leonard Skinner? And I say, I don't know. Say it's getting late. What you want to do for dinner? She says, I kind of had a big lunch, so I'm not super hungry. I said, well, you know, baby, I'm not starving either, but I could eat. She says, well, what do you have in mind? I said, I don't know. What about you? She says, I don't care if you're hungry. Let's eat. I said, that's what we're going to do. But first, you got to tell me what it is you're hungry for. And she says, let me think what's left in our refrigerator. I said, well, there's tuna, I know. She said that went bad a week ago. I said, is the chili okay? She said, you finished that yesterday. I hopped up and said, I don't know, do you want to get something delivered? She's like, why would I want to eat liver? I don't even like liver. I'm like, no, I said delivered. She's like, I heard you say liver. I'm like, I should know what I said. She's like, whatever, I just don't want any liver. Well, I was going to say something, but my cell phone started to ring. Now who could be calling me? Well, I checked my caller ID. Like Trapped in the Closet, Trapped in the drive through is full of conflict and disagreements. And they escalate, they escalate, they escalate, and there's repetition. Like the original, Trapped in the drive through goes so overboard with repetition that repeating the same words over and over again becomes hyp- hypnotic as well as annoyingly hilarious. So... Um, 
you know, it, it just starts off quiet and slow and intimate and it builds and builds and builds in intensity, you know, musically and in terms of Al's vocals until it reaches a furious climax, wildly dispor- disproportionate to the, the everyday nonsense being discussed, and then the process starts all over again. It's, it's, it's comedic genius at its finest. I agree. Um, so definitely, you know, you're about to really enjoy... Uh, if you listen to our accompanying playlist, you're going to enjoy this one if you've not heard it before because it is, it is, it's second only to Amish Paradise for me. I, it's just, it may be the second. Some people may say it's the first. I mean, it's one of the funniest songs this man has ever recorded. Um, and, you know, it doesn't hurt that right in the middle, for no apparent reason at all, he provides a sample of Black Dog by Led Zeppelin, which is perfectly timed and, and, it does progress the story. There's a reason for its use, but it's just, I don't know, it, it is just an amazing song, and it is the only song of Al to be listed on Wikipedia as belonging to the unique subgenre of hip-hopera, hmm. which I didn't even know was a thing. I, I didn't I'm either. a DJ, and I've never heard of hip-hopera, but apparently trapped in the... Is that hip-hop tra- opera? I, I guess, yeah. Hmm. Um no, it, it helps close out one of Al's best albums, too, in a very big way. It's a standout parody with just this oddball soul and epic audacity, and it's I you can't go wrong. I had to include it. It is it 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 may be my well, it's definitely my top three. One of my top three by by Al. It, it's just fantastic. So there you go. Great choice. All right, well, I have this is my last pick, and I have two on my list, my uh, alternates list. And uh, I, I know I'm going to go with I'm going to go with Party in the CIA, okay. um, just because I love I love the the satire. Um, I'm going to quickly talk about the one I didn't choose, and that's the only song that I chose for Mandatory Fun, which was his last official album in 2014, and that's a parody of Radioactive by Imagine Dragons, uh, yeah. which is called Inactive. Yes, and I thought that's really nice to go full circle because he had you know we start off I start off with I love Rocky Road and all his songs about food, and this song is just an ode to the sedentary. This is an ode to the sedentary lifestyle. Uh, quote, my muscles gone, I'm atrophied. Always lose my fight with gravity. <laughs> um, in addition to getting permission to parody this song, Imagine Dragons provided with him um, advice on how to get the right sounds and tones so that he could properly parody the song. Really? Because, you know, the original song has all sorts of different oh, sonic oh, yeah, yeah. things going on there. And they, they kind of gave him some clues on how to recreate those sounds. Um, inactive proves that Weird Al is just as sharp, even sharper at the end of his career than he's ever been. And, you know, so many artists, um, they go into that zone, right? You could argue Springsteen goes into that zone where... He becomes Springsteen, and he continues to just be Springsteen, and that's fine. But he doesn't break new ground. He doesn't go to new heights. He just becomes Springsteen, and people are happy with that. Then you get people like Neil Young that are constantly just trying to keep people on their toes. And then you get people, you know, arguably like, uh, I'm trying to think of an example, but uh, Bob Dylan, for instance, right, that just really every generation seemed to break new ground in some area and just go somewhere uh, and just do something great and, 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 and different and innovative. Um, not not Weird Al. He just continues. Yes, he's continuing to, to make parodies and create you know humorous songs. But he continues to get sharper and sharper as he goes. I really yeah. believe that. Yeah. 
And finally, yes, Party in the CIA um, from Apocalypse, which was a 2011 album, which is a parody of Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus. Uh, it is the first and only time where he has parodied a father and a daughter. That's true. Because he did Achy Breaky, Breaky Song, song from yeah. Billy Ray Cyrus. And, of course, now he's parodying Miley. Um, building on this political tones of, um, of Canadian idiot, Party in the USA does not shy away from taking swipes at American intelligence and international interventions. Right? So what could have just been a fun song about, you know, people in dark glasses and... You know, spy spy espionage. He really takes it to the next level and makes it uh, makes it a statement on uh, the United States' um, incessant need to stick their um, diplomatic nose into other countries' business, <laughs> and to often do it in ways which maybe are less than you know. Um, what's what word am I looking for? Less than ethical I don't know yeah I don't uh, know I don't want to become too political that's not the point of the show right but I love the fact that he is just again not afraid to kind of probe at some of our conventions as a country and to kind of play around with that idea that maybe not all of our interventions necessarily are on the up and up I moved out to Langley recently with a plain and simple dream wanna infiltrate some third world place and topple their regime those men in black with their mansion suitcases Where everything's on a need-to-know basis Agents got that swagger Everyone's so cloak and dagger I'm feeling nervous but I'm really kind of wishing For an undercover mission That's when the red alert came on the radio And I put my earpiece on Got my dark sunglasses on And I had my weapon drawn So I get my handcuffs, my cyanide pills My classified Shredding the files like yeah I memorized all the enemy's files I gotta neutralize today Yeah It's a party in the CIA Yeah It's a party in the CIA It's one of my alternates as well um, So I'm glad that you chose it I mean it, it is just <laughs> It is just Unbelievably funny to me because Al's parodies are, are never this dark, violent, satirical, or political. Except for his Christmas songs. Oh, yeah. True. <laughs> they are very dark and but, violent. But I mean, you know, it's just part, party in the CIA, it subverts the, the bubbly innocence of, of Cyrus's original and takes it in an embracingly dark direction lyrically, while simultaneously underlining the song's enduring strengths is a perfect piece of bubblegum pop. I mean, it's just, right, right. you know, and just the, the idea that, you know, I never thought that you would find cyanide pills and classified dossier in a chorus of a pop song. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it's just, and we also learned that the FBI has a better dental plan than the CIA. <laughs> or no, the CIA has a better dental plan than the FBI is, yes, is what it good is. good stuff. Uh, it's, it's, it's hilarious. And we covered the original on our 4th of July episode as well. Yes, we did. Very, very true. Um, now I'm glad you used it because I wasn't going to get another chance to my alternates and that was one that I would wanted to use if I did and I get a feeling maybe a lot of our listeners our Gen X listeners um, maybe quit following the career of Weird Al up to a certain point possible and so hopefully yeah. this is introducing you to some of the newer stuff that he's done that's just really well done hope so yeah I, I would I would love to introduce them to some of these songs for the first time because they are they're just incredible and you know, that's definitely 
it's it's just Al is one of those artists. You know, they're they're those artists that you just want to share with the world, right? You know, and if you did stop following him, probably my guess would be right around the time of Alpalooza, maybe. Right, yeah. Gen Xers might have called it quits on Al. Um, his later work, I mean, it it gets. He's just as witty, just as sharp as, as he's ever been. So, yeah, if this is your first time listening to some of these songs, we hopefully, you know, we, we gave you a, an incredible list to begin with. All right, well, the only alternate I did not, well, I shouldn't say I, the only alternate that did not make our, our mixtape is Ricky, um, which, of course, was a parody of Mickey by Tony Basil um, from his 1983 self-titled first album where Yankovic we talked about Ricky though I mean I don't need to rehash anything that we've already discussed but that's the only alternate out of my six that you and or I did not include so my number 12 final song that I'm including here it's actually a parody of a Robin Thicke song titled Blurred Lines Word Crimes yeah it's from the 2014 album Mandatory Fun this one actually was a top 40 hit it hit number 39 uh, and it is titled Word Crimes. Yeah. Um, you know, there isn't a single... Which I would have picked, by the way, had I, know, I knew for sure you would have oh, this. Oh, really? Yeah. I went well, for good for, for good reason. There isn't a single song in the Weird Al catalog that's even PG-13. So an X-rated tune like Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines might seem like a tricky one for Al to tackle. But Al loves the challenge. He actually said, quote, I wanted to take a song that was ostensibly misogynistic and people were saying it was even a little rapey and make it into a song that could ostensibly be part of a school's curriculum. <laughs> Which it can be. <laughs> Which it absolutely can be. The result is Word Crimes, a schoolhouse rock-esque lesson about grammar. Um, yeah, the, the hit parody, it, it finds out trading in the club bedroom of Robin Thicke, Pharrell, and, and T.I.'s original uh, for the classroom. And it's a word nerd subversion of Robin Thicke's controversial smash hit. Word Crimes has an unmistakably party groove. And unfortunately for Robin Thicke, his uh, accountant and his bank account, it's, it's very specifically the party groove of a shindig where the Marvin Gaye song, Got to Give It Up, is blaring on the stereo. Because they, you know, very notably, uh, basically plagiarized Got to Give It Up by Marvin Gaye in, in the original version. 2014's Word Crimes contains nearly four minutes of grammar shaming by Al, uh, who is a self-proclaimed grammar nerd in real life. Word Crimes became a viral hit thanks to its use of creative lyric video in lieu of a music video, right? Uh, which writers and editors across the world had forwarded to them by friends and family members. And Word Crimes helped the album Mandatory Fun, Yankovic's 14th, reach number one on the Billboard 200 and earn a Grammy for Best Comedy Album. Now, here's the thing. This is the first time, this is his 14th album, his most recent. The debuted at number one. It's the first yeah. album by Weird Al Yankovic to debut at number one. And that's his one. most recent. That shows you how relevant he still is. Yeah. Um, and it's just incredible. And the, the song was never even released as a single and yet reached the top 40. Yep. Because of viral airplay. Um Perhaps because it's spoofing such a controversial song, Word Crimes contains several of the most controversial lyrics in Al's catalog. Okay. Um, when Al adv- advises listeners in the song, quote, you should never write words using numbers unless you're seven or your name is Prince. 
Fans speculated on whether Al was sending shots in the direction of a certain purple-loving Minnesota eccentric with a long public record of turning down his parody requests. Yes, yes. Um, was Al comparing the artist formerly known as the artist formerly known as Prince to a bratty seven-year-old? <laughs> Al would never be petty enough to lash out in song at Prince for something like rejecting his parody requests. He just, that's not how he plays. Um, he's not that kind of guy. The tone might be a little sharp and sarcastic, but I was actually, I think, paying tribute to Prince here by positing correctly that he is, or rather was, the only person in the world who could get away with indulging that particular linguistic quirk without it seeming unbelievably obnoxious. Um, Word Crimes uh, echoes the sordidness of its source material with one of Al's biggest double entendres when he advises listeners to procure the services of a cunning linguist (laughs) to help you distinguish what's proper English. You'd actually have to go back to Al's heartbroken doo-wopper one more minute, being stranded all alone in the gas station of love. You have to use the self-service pump. pump. (laughs) The final line is uncharacteristically ribald. Everybody shut up. Word Crimes finds Al rhyming fantastic with a word that has been used as a slur against the mentally challenged. Um, it seems sadly apt that Al would make one of his biggest linguistic stumbles in a song called Word Crimes, but Al's unwitting use of a word with an ugly history behind it represents less a word crime than an honest mistake, and he has apologized repeatedly for and has learned from um, its use. So, you know, in in all, Word Crimes isn't just built on obnoxiously infectious pop anthems. It's based on two insanely catchy pop hits. So it's only fitting that Al's cerebral subversion of Robin Thicke's creepy Predator anthem marked his fourth biggest all-time chart hit, peaking at number 39 in 2016. Al has subsequently, as we've already said, scored now top 40 singles in four consecutive decades. Mm Mm-hmm. Eat It in the 80s, Smells Like Nirvana in the 90s, White and Nerdy in the 2000s, and finally Word Crimes for the 2010s. And Word Crimes is such an undeniable monster of a parody that I'm a little surprised uh, it wasn't Mandatory Fun's kickoff track. In its spot, about halfway through the album, Word Crimes gives Mandatory Fun a wonderful blast of energy that's just pointedly smart and silly, as opposed to rapey and deeply problematic, like 
I think Ziggy Azalea's song is the one that starts off that album. Yeah, and that's uh, tacky. And he had to get permission. That's a great story, too, because he couldn't get a hold of her. And and eventually he went to one of her concerts and got backstage and literally cornered her as she came off stage. And she said, "Um, well, I got to see the lyrics first. So he pulled out a piece of paper from his pocket and she read through them backstage and said, yeah, that's okay. Go ahead and do it. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm so tacky. Yeah, um, which I I almost included that. That yeah. was one I considered. Uh, there, there are quite a few on mandatory fun that are that are pretty good. He he has a great cover of Lord's Royals mm-hmm. called Foil, right? Um, and and as you said, the the Imagine Dragons uh, inactive, parody, inactive. That's great. Uh, yeah, it's he is definitely. I mean, he's well into the 21st century, and even though he said he may not re- re- release any new albums. I mean, the singles just keep coming, and, and you know, there, there's a lot, I hope, there's a lot more of Weird Al uh, ahead in our musical futures. So that's it. Hopefully uh, well, here's everybody the, in, enjoyed the two-parter. Well, here's my question, okay? So normally we have to go in and we have to sequence, and, and it's based on you know lots of factors if you listen to our show. Um, there was one, which was the show, there was one show where it was really easy. Was it the Billy Joel show because we went chronologically or not? Now, Billy Joel was not chronological. No, there was one show where we decided to go. We had a particular way, and they just kind of all fell into place. Well, black and white, one side was black, that was, and one yeah. song was white, and it was just the songs as we basically listed them. Maybe it was TV shows, because we went chronologically for Chron- TV yeah, shows. Yeah, TV shows, we went chronologically. So I'm wondering if we should do the same here, to show the evolution of Weird Al. That's what I was going to suggest. All right. I mean, really, I mean, we could... You know, sequence these so that they flow lyrically and musically, but I think that would be a very daunting task because he is all over the place. I mean, as we said, he's a chameleon. Every genre is represented. I mean, chronologically, to me, just makes sense because it's fun to see how he progresses. Um, Yeah, I'm good with that. So... So So, we leave him here. Yeah, we're we're All right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Now, I... Well... Not entirely, because I was ahead of you, so technically, chronologically. No, I mean, the, the, yes, I know that the, the, the playlist will sound a little different than the, the okay. order in which we yeah. introduced it, but I don't know that we need to read off to that, the, no. because the playlist is chronological. Right, there's, yeah. there's no secret. It just It's yeah. going to go in the order in which they were released. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it, it's, not, it's not in the order we presented them, because we were at different Correct. places, but right. yeah, no, chronologically makes... I mean, the only, the only choices we'll have, if two or three from the same album, deciding which maybe goes first, yeah. but other than that... And we only have, well, we, we named a lot of um, mentioned songs, though, but as far as alternates, we both were left with just one. Yeah, no, that's pretty good. So... Um, which I can thank you for because I only had the opportunity to use one. <laughs> so, um, now this one, this is a fantastic two-part episode. And if you are a fan of Weird Al, hopefully we hit your favorite parodies. If you have not been following his career for a while, hopefully we've introduced you to some some wonderful songs that are going to become new favorites. So, And next week we have coming for you. Oh, We've been boy. talking about this episode for two years now. We're finally getting to Guilty Pleasures. Yes. And I've used half of my list already, so I had to find new ones. See, that is... I, maybe I'm just... I don't know. Because I literally... I had, my first list of guilty pleasures as I started brainstorming was over 200 songs long. Well, here's the okay. Here's my definition so, of a guilty pleasure. Okay, it has to be a song. I guess I boil it down to this: that if you know me, okay, uh, you would either be shocked to to think that I like the song, 
Or if you don't know me, I would be embarrassed for you to think that I like this song. Okay. Yeah. See, I'm 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 right there with you, except I think that people would not be surprised that I like them. If anything, they would kind of look at me and say, Yeah, that's because Alan's an you know, an idiot <laughs> in some respects. But they are, all of my songs are songs that if I'm driving in public on a summer afternoon with my windows down and I'm at a stoplight, I'm going to turn down the stereo because so I, I don't want it blaring out of the window. Well, a good example or, is the Starship song that I chose for the movie episode. Okay, yeah. Nothing's going to stop us. Right. Okay. Um, people that know me would be shocked to know that I like that song and I would never in a million years I was. <laughs> let anyone know that I like that song because I would be very embarrassed. Right. And we've, I give my defense of why I like that song because, yeah. Right. But, um, so all of my guilty pleasure songs fall in that category. Okay, yeah. Now mine are just and and mine aren't necessarily all songs that I'm embarrassed for people to know, but they're songs that I definitely would not want people seeing or or listen or seeing or hearing me listen to in public. Yeah, I get you. you. Yeah. Not because I'm necessarily embarrassed, but because it's just not. Well, maybe it is just embarrassment. I don't know. But like some of the songs, some of the songs are a throwback to when my kids were younger. Some of them are just songs that are a throwback to when I was younger, you know? So it's it's not all embarrassment. A lot of it's nostalgia, much like yours was yeah. from the, the Mannequin And some are uh, tough. Soundtrack. Like, a perfect example would be ABBA, okay? ABBA is somewhere, it has one foot in the guilty pleasure camp and one foot in the, hey, they're a legitimate pop band that did some really great stuff and I'll listen to them with the sound all the way up and the windows down. So, you know, some are close. And some of them were just automatic. Yep, that's that's a guilty pleasure. So, yeah, yeah. I'm good. Regardless, you're going to learn a whole lot about me and and Dave <laughs> in the next two part uh, episode. Um, I will say that mine hits probably the four biggest guilty pleasure artists. I okay. have all four of them included. A lot of its time has changed too because ABBA would have been definitely 100% guilty pleasure back in college when I was listening to them. Yeah, see, I'm not including And, and the Bee Gees would have been as well. But now today, I don't, you know, it, I, I feel a little more open about yeah. my like for this band. Now, I, I, have, I have some artists on my list that just their names, the, the names themselves are punchlines. Right. And they're right there because sadly, uh, I, 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 find a cheap thrill in, in listening to the songs. Now, here's the here's the honest truth, though. There is no such thing as a guilty pleasure. Sure. Oh, no, no. I mean, you like what you like, yes. and there's no shame in... It's a, like, it's, it's a snobbish uh, it is. convention it, to begin with. But, it is. It's entirely constructed. But it gives us permission to feel like we are better than everybody else and can still listen to those yeah. songs. And we're not alone. I mean, everybody has those songs that, you know, when someone walks into the room, you're quick to, to turn it down or, or turn it off. Um I just happen to have a lot of those songs. <laughs> so it'll be really, I, I can't wait to see what's on your list. I can't wait. And I mean, I'm, some of them I want to feature, but I'm like, I don't know. I mean, they probably don't belong on my guilty pleasure list. Put it this way. I'm having trouble with a couple of songs that I that don't, put it this way. I'm having trouble with a couple of songs that people would be surprised to hear that I like, but I wouldn't necessarily be embarrassed to like. Yeah. That's, I, that's my... I have a couple of those, too. In fact, I have a couple of songs that my wife and kids looked at my list and said, those aren't guilty pleasures. Right. But my wife is... Uh, she was born in 1980. She's at the... She's on the bubble mm -hmm. of, you know, Gen X and Millennial, uh, whereas I was born uh, in 73. And my kids, obviously, are Gen... Well, I guess they're Gen... 
Gen Z. Z. Yep. Um, so, you know, they're looking at it from an entirely different perspective. You know, when I think Gen X, there are certain songs that our generation has already admonished as guilty pleasures that my wife and kids don't necessarily think right. in those terms. But it's going to be an interesting interesting two-part episode nonetheless. So we hope you tune in. It's going to be it's going to be a very interesting mixtape and in I'm not even sure how we're going to sequence the songs for our playlist. So it's going to be fun. Well, that's all for this week then. Hot Funk, Cool Punk, even if it's old junk. Another mix of memories awaits next week. But for now, press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject. And we will see you on the flip side.